Welcome to the third episode of A Word from the Edge, Faith, Religion, and Spiritual Community at the Edge of Secular Culture. I'm Brother Richard Edward Helmer, Rector of Church of Our Savior, Mill Valley, California, and your host. In this episode, we welcome Michael Morrison to speak in an education forum at Church of Our Savior about the discipleship and witness of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer's efforts to build a Christ-centered life were sorely tested and shaped by the rise of Nazi Germany. While he paid the ultimate price for his Christian witness, Bonhoeffer left us a legacy of reflecting on the kind of world that emerged in the middle of the 20th century and the place of the Christian disciple in it, particularly as what he called a guilty martyr. So, good afternoon. It's great to welcome you all here to our um, Adult Education Forum for uh, today. Very um, happy and grateful to introduce to you um, a friend and colleague in ministry here in Mill Valley. Mike Morrison and I have known each other for, I think, the past 11 years. Mm-hmm. Um, have done some work together preaching at the Ecumenical Good Friday service over at Peace Lutheran. Um, we've bumped into each other, our families bumped into each other uh, down at um, the Monterey Aquarium one time, I remember. Yes. Um, and Mike is also well known for leading trips to the Holy Land and um, exploring holy sites um, in Israel. And um, he holds a Master of Theology degree from Loyola University of Chicago and a Master of Divinity degree from Weston Jesuit School of Theology in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Uh, Mike's thesis for his systematic theology degree was titled Christology as the Unifying Factor in the Life and Work of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. During his research, his mentor was Dr. Burton Nelson, who was the vice president of the International Bonhoeffer Society's Oral History Committee. And as a result, uh, Mike has access to Bonhoeffer's family, including his official biographer, Eberhard Bethlehem, um, as well as friends, students, and a number of unpublished source materials. So we're very grateful to Mike for sharing some of his insights into a profound witness in a profound and challenging time. And if that's God, tell him I said hi. <laughs> as Dietrich said, be cautious. As Dietrich said, be cautious. Very good. Very good. So uh, please give a warm welcome to Mike Morrison, and uh, over to you. Let's give him a round of applause. Thank you. It's a privilege to be here today, and I think one of the interesting things that I know the people that have read Bonhoeffer are aware of is the fact that one of his best friends, especially at the time he was involved in the conspiracy, was Bishop Bell of Chichester, England. So he, had, he was very friendly with the uh, Anglican Church in England and um, learned much from them in terms of he visited a number of the monasteries and seminaries in order to understand a different perspective in designing the seminary that he would run underground at Finkenwald. So um, it's a pleasure to be able to come in to people who, by brotherly tradition, are very close to him um, as well. 
So with that, what I want to do today is I'm not going to delve into the theology of Bonhoeffer. I know a lot of people of you may have read about that. But the thing that we want to do is see what was going on in the context of his life. My mentor that we were introduced with, um, Dr. F. Burton Nelson, said when I was in a seminar class, and he was the guest speaker, he said, Bonhoeffer is a prime example of theology as biography. And that's what makes him a very attractive person and very fascinating. Because his theology was soundly grounded in scripture and systematics and in spirituality. But it was a theology that had to respond to a moment in time, a term that he used, the here and now. And from that perspective, we don't see a developed theology as what we would call a system of how he perceived the whole thing. His was an evolving one because he was responding to the tumult of the rise of Germany and Nazism. And from that perspective, that's what makes him fascinating. Because in that sense, the theology is not a complete system that we can look at and critique, but it is a theology that's very strong in witness. And from that perspective of that witness, it challenges us. And what I found for myself in studying him, and uh, if you want to know what that's like being a good Jesuit boy at a conservative Catholic college, doing his dissertation on a liberal Protestant theologian, um, that certainly will take you a long way. But with that, what fascinated me with him was in reading his theology, he engaged me in a conversation with his theology that led me to a conversation with myself. And that's the power of Bonhoeffer. So from that perspective, his official biographer, Eberhard Betge, uh, I want to go back here. Um, did I lose his slide? No. Okay. Betke married into the family. He was the assistant director at the underground seminary. He was a student. He was a colleague. And Bonhoeffer left, and a confidant, and Bonhoeffer left all his papers to Eberhard Betge. So he's the definitive biographer. And from that perspective, um, when Richard and I were talking, we were talking about a newer biography that was out, and you asked me about that, and I said, no, no, you want to read Eberhard Betke. This is the closest person to Bonhoeffer, so you get the real flavor of the immediate reaction, um, both from a scholarly perspective and from the friend's perspective and the colleague's perspective. And everybody is built off of his initial work. So with that, but he said, Bonhoeffer's nature remains undiscovered unless he is encountered as a person. We need to understand the movement of his life in order to fully appreciate, take in his theology and do it in a way that it speaks to us, to me. Does that make sense? Okay. I ask that question because I'm a teacher. <laughs> and no problem. And that really becomes the basis of what we wish to talk about. 
Eberhard Betge said that there are three crossroads in Bonhoeffer's life. And those three crossroads are his birth up to 1930, where he develops into a theologian. The second period of his life is he becomes a Christian between 1931-1939. And the third phase of his life, he becomes a contemporary. Faith will seek action. So these are the three major crossroads in his life, three major periods in his life, and they help us understand the movement that I'll be talking about. But at the same time, my mentor said that each of those crossroads, each of those periods of his life, had paths within that period. So in the period of the theologian, it's going to be the family and it's going to be his education. He grows up in a family where his father held the chair of psychiatry at the University of Berlin. He is the premier psychiatrist in Germany. He is riding on the trolley car to school with such august people as von Harnack and other well-known church historians of the time. So he is viewed um, and, and nurtured within a very strong academic environment. And his family is upper middle class. Um, he is the younger, so he's looking at his brothers who have chosen their careers. So being a good younger brother who has uh, grown up in the church, he looks at this and he's saying, this is where I can fit in a way that I'm not competing with my brothers. So he goes on to be a theologian. And in terms of becoming a theologian, he will write his dissertation, which is called Sanctorium, Sanctorum Communio, Communion of Saints. Very well done philosophical, theological work on the communion of saints, understanding the church and Christ's role within the church. This is all intellectual assent at the moment. Faithful, but it's intellectual assent at the moment. And he'll do an inaugural address called Act in Being, where he concludes at the end of it that Christ as the center of it all, act and being are one. They're not separate things. He goes to New York for postdoctoral work at Union Theological in New York, and that's going to take us into that second part of his life as a university lecturer, as pastor, and as a seminary director. And he becomes a Christian. Those seeds, that metanoia takes its place where he personalizes this now in this period of his life, 31, 32, and he's really going to be seeing some changes happening and we'll be talking about that. And in that third phase of, uh, um, of his life, well, let's go, we'll, uh, I set it up a little differently. <clears throat> and so let's talk about that. In, in, that. in that phase in 1931, 1932, 33, he is now moving as a professional in teaching at the university. And this is where he's perceived himself as moving to. Theologian, teacher. A thinker within the context of the church. 
But what happened in New York was very powerful because he was exposed to American students, he was exposed to the social gospel, he went to Abyssinian Baptist Church, was exposed to the black culture of worship, and he saw what suffering was looking like at that time in the United States, and he took this in. But another very powerful experience with all of that going on was the fact that he and his European colleagues that were at Union discovered something that they felt was interesting, and that was in the United States we had a tendency to act first, think after. He said in our European model we would think first for a long time and then act. So he saw that contrast, and I think that he saw that things had to begin to come together in a middle phase. While he was there, he went with Jean Lasserre, who was um, from France, and they went, interestingly enough, a German and a Frenchman, not long after World War I, to see a movie called All Quiet on the Western Front, which is an anti-war movie. And when they're sitting in the movie, Jean Lasserre reports about this, and he was talking about how moved he was because he is a Frenchman, he's with a German, the movie is done from the German's perspective, the Americans are cheering the Germans and booing at the time that the Allies are getting an upper hand. And this tore him up because he thought this is an, you know, this is a movie with a statement against the war, but Lester felt, you're Americans. And this troubled him greatly, and Bonhoeffer could not do enough after the movie to be present and to console him. And this was the beginning of a real life-changing event in terms of Bonhoeffer's faith. Lasserre reports that they both began to become aware that the church goes beyond nationalism of any sort. That discipleship is to Christ. So he is now beginning to make this personal commitment and transition as a disciple of Christ. And this is a very powerful movement on his part. Well, this is now going to begin to need to evolve itself because we don't get hit with full discipleship in all, understanding it all in one second. He's going to have to live this discipleship and make decisions day by day about that. So when he returns to Germany, he goes back to the classroom the third course that he teaches is Christology, the study of Christ. And his students now are mainly German national sympathizers. He has tried in the beginning of his teaching to counter national socialism as it was rearing its head in academia, and it didn't work. So he now moves to becoming a pastor. But that last class is significant, and the students that were there report how it struck them. And it struck them in a very powerful way because he spoke differently. 
he still brought the academic pieces, but he was also bringing the faith at the same time to the course. And he said it's not an issue of proving or disproving Christ, the incarnation. He said what it's about is that that's a given. It's presumed true. Now we build from there. In that, he says in the opening sentence of the students' notes, because we don't have the lecture, but the compiled notes of the students, the opening sentence was, to speak of Christ is to be silent. To be silent about Christ is to speak. And that's coming into that personal encounter with the Jesus of history and the Christ of faith. What he's saying is, we want to ask the question, Jesus, who are you? Are you the Christ? And Bonhoeffer comes back in that area and says, you can only ask that question when you are ready to hear Jesus' counter-question and answer that. Who do you say that I am? So this is becoming a very personal relationship for Bonhoeffer between his encounter with the Christ of faith and discipleship. What he tells us is that Christ is the center. Christ is the center of all reality. Christ is the mediator of all reality. He is the mediator between me and God. He is the mediator between me and my fellow humans. He is the mediator between me and the natural world. And he is the mediator between me and myself. That's a pretty powerful because it shows not just the place of Christ as center, it shows where when we recognize that we stand ourselves as disciples in relationship. And these are seminal thoughts coming out. This is where he's beginning. And he talks about the Christ pro me, the Christ for me. But if Christ stands pro me for me, Christ also stands as the man for others. And that now places us in a situation where later he'll develop it more, doesn't really say it here, that I must be the person who stands in Christ's place for others. So the seeds of his Christology and, and his understanding of relationship with Christ and, and his personal embracing into his heart of his faith, that metanoia, we see the seminal pieces of it laid in the groundwork in the Christology lectures. Sure. No, he was, a, he was a theologian, he was a Christian, but it was by intellectual assent, it was by piety. But now, when we say metanoia, this is where I now, deep down personally, have now taken this in and I embrace it with a depth. And it's not simply intellectual or my offering piety to God. It is I am in a living relationship and presence with God.
Does that make sense? Okay. Now, what's interesting is when he goes forward and he's teaching at the seminary, most of you have probably seen the book. The old version is called The Cost of Discipleship. The, new, the newest printings are called uh, Discipleship. And these, this is, was not written as a book. What he was doing is he was looking at his seminarians. He's running an underground seminary at this time. And the confessing church broke away from the Lutheran Church of Germany because the Reich bishops had been elected. The Germans who sympathized with Nazism were in the Reich Church. Those that said, this is not where Christianity and the Bible call us, left and formed the confessing church and had to form small underground seminaries to prepare ministers. His seminary had two unique characteristics. It included a house of brethren where the design was, and the seminary design was, a detailed study of the Sermon on the Mount. A community in service and in spiritual exercises. And a community that witnessed to the passive um, resistance model and ecumenical openness. That was the thrust of the seminary. In the House of Brethren, they were to live a common life that included prayer, um, it included the Lord's Supper, it included private confession. We're talking Lutheranism in the 1940s. And it included meditation because it was in this community experience that one could find the preparation and strength to go out and as, I'm using my words, but they're very close to his, um, this was the preparation so that these ministers would go out into the field and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ in opposition to Mein Kampf. Most of those students went to jail very quickly after they started. But the seminary maintained a prayer list and maintained get-togethers with those that graduated were not under arrest, and this and they maintained a prayer relationship with all of their people. Bonhoeffer is dealing with this idea that Discipleship is about personal adherence to Jesus Christ. Because, and he said it in the um, uh, Christology lectures, we are not dealing with an idea. I can walk away from, from GOAT, I can walk away from any philosopher, because I'm reading their material, they're dead. But in Jesus Christ, we are encountering the living word, the living person. And that drives him then to start looking at church again. Remember that original dissertation of communion of saints. So he talks about 
cheap grace and costly grace. Cheap grace essentially is grace we give ourselves. There's a self-righteousness to it. I can justify what I've done. I can even use biblical principles to justify what I did. I'm clean. That's essentially what cheap grace is. And what he's saying is cheap grace is grace without discipleship, without the cross, suffering, and without Jesus Christ. Costly grace is the grace that must be sought after. It's the grace we look for every day. It is the grace of a living encounter with the living Jesus where I am seeking the gospel every day. And I'll, get, I'll come back to that a little bit later when we get into the conspiracy. But the uh, um, cost of discipleship, what made it unique is that he wanted his people, his seminarians, to understand what they were preparing for as disciples. So it was not written as a book. It was, pardon me, it was a series of lectures that he wrote one at a time and presented to the students and compiled into a book. I had the privilege of inspecting the original manuscript, and what impressed me about it, I wish I could do this, but I call it inspired writing because you could go through the manuscript and on one hand or two hands look at the number of strikeouts in it. A document inspired and written from the heart, each one of the chapters. And that's a very powerful thing. And the whole thrust of it is caught up in, the Sermon on the Mount is covered in it very closely, but the beginning of the, uh, of the book gets to the heart of what he's talking about. Remember, it's a church that is under persecution. The Gestapo will close the underground seminaries. They are standing in opposition by embracing the gospel against Mein Kampf. And he begins his first lecture, Revival of the church life always brings in its train a richer understanding of scriptures. Behind all the slogans and catchwords of ecclesiastical controversy, necessary though they are, there arises a more determined quest for him who is the sole object of it all, for Jesus Christ himself. What did Jesus mean to say to us? What is his will for us today? How can he help us to be good Christians in the modern world? In the last resort, what we want to know is not what this or that man or this or that church have of us, but what Jesus Christ himself wants of us. That's a powerful statement because it goes to discipleship from the heart. And a discipleship that I'm not dealing with Christian ideas where I can be this way in church services and I can be that way in the world. That's not relationship. I need to be who I am and I need to be transformed by this relationship. Does that make sense so far? You know, I always feel bad at a quick lecture because it, there's always so much 
that's important, but you can't say. Yes? He was living in Finkenwalde, Germany. They, he, was, um, he had a home that was provided, probably about 15 to 20 seminarians. Um, it was in the hinterreaches of Germany. They wanted to be outside where the Gestapo really had a strong control. And that, and that was how those four or five seminaries survived uh, for the period of time that they did. So. Okay, uh, Bonhoeffer's paths that are taken as a contemporary are going to be resistance conspirator, prisoner, and guilty martyr. And um, what was taking place was after the seminary was closed, what they wanted him to do is go to New York, be present in the United States, be safe. They knew the war was coming, and he was already strongly on the Nazi radar. Um, when he got to New York and he had been there for a little bit, he realized, I cannot do this. So what I was told by one of the people who were there when I was at the International Bonhoeffer meeting, and we were talking on the side, is that they went with Bonhoeffer down to the ship. He was taking literally the last ship out. And he stopped them because they wanted to go on board and visit with him for, last time, for the last time before the ship departed, and he said no. And he said, Gestapo. He did not want them on the ship. What he told them was, and this is recorded because he wrote it in a letter as well, what he told them was, I cannot participate in the reconstruction of the church in Germany after the war unless I have suffered with it. That's a powerful statement. And he knew, being well on the radar for the Nazis, he was probably looking at a 50-50 chance because he had been very strong as a pacifist. And he even told people, if I'm asked to do service, I pray to God that I will be able to refuse. When he got home, he couldn't refuse. His family was so embroiled with the highest level of the conspiracy against Hitler and had been since 1936 that had he taken upon draft a conscientious objector's stance under the Hitler's Nuremberg laws, he would be found guilty for treason as a traitor and it would bring about a Gestapo investigation of the family. So they brought him in to the Abwehr, which now took him out of the realm of being drafted because he's now working with military intelligence, counterintelligence, the one organization that Hitler had no constitutional control over. And that's where the plot against Hitler was established and coordinated out of Ad Admiral Canaris's office. The idea of the conspiracy in the beginning was to arrest Hitler for treason, arrest his Nazi leadership, try them for treason, and Bonhoeffer's father was going to testify to the insanity of Adolf Hitler. I mean, you're talking deep into the conspiracy, so to protect the conspiracy he went to the Abwehr, where they used him as a double agency 
through Bishop Bella Chichester mostly, to inform the Allies of what the conspiracy was doing. Because they were about four months, roughly, short of arresting Hitler when he invaded Poland, and, it, and because of the fact that he invaded and was successful, you, he has all these people that are now kind of behind him. You cannot do a constitutional thing. It had now shifted. It needed to be an assassination, and it had to be the arresting of all the leadership. And at that time, there were three plots that we know of. The July 20th plot was the last of the three. There are some other subplots that are in between. But essentially, you know, Hitler was a person that was graced by the devil. You know, the first plot, one of Bonhoeffer's relatives, was with Lufthansa Airlines. They smuggled five bombs onto the plane. German explosives, British timers, the best combination in the world. None of, none of them worked. And then they had the problem of getting them off the plane at the other end as a result. The second time, a uh, general was going to be at a munitions factory, wear his great coat because it was wintertime, the nice long German coats, and he had it rigged with explosives, and when he shook Hitler's hand, he was going to detonate, and something came up in the war, and he canceled the visit. That's why I say he was graced by the devil. So the third plot, July 20th, 44, everybody's heard about that one, and um, that's where we find ourselves. So he becomes a resistance conspirator, a, conspirator, a double agent, and he helps with uh, the Abwehr smuggling some Jews out of Germany. He's arrested. After, um, he's arrested at one point. They know what's going on. They just don't have proof, but they do get into Canaris's office. They have proof. Bonhoeffer's arrested. He's in prison. And for the July 20th um, um, plot, he is going to reflect the next day after the failure because he knows it's over. Now, a lot of times we have the idea, we have a good idea of what's going to happen with circumstances, many of us at certain times. Well, the fact that he knew that he was so far involved in the plot, they had arrested most of the key people to, 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 you know, to the conspiracy. And um, <laughs> to kind of verify that sense, sixth sense that he had, what it turned out was at the end of the war, it was found that he was one of 200 people on a list that Himmler made up and Hitler signed of these 200 people under any circumstances must not survive the war. Now, I'd like to be able to say sometime, it would be nice to be a part of that kind of list, but I'm not sure I'd really want to be a part of that kind of list. It's kind of that human piece to it. And we'll talk about that concept of martyrdom. Um, what we see in Bonhoeffer's life is he's struggling with the gospel and action. And he's not going to do it with security. He'll, he'll actually say, as he's coming back and becoming a conspirator, he will say, you know, we have two options. I must wish for the defeat of Germany and the salvation of our civilization, or I must wish 
that Germany wins and the destruction of our civilization. He said, I know what I must choose. I cannot do it with security. And this is where we're going to go with Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer is a person who is going to struggle with discipleship as it needs to find itself in concrete action. And that becomes one of our challenges for ourselves even today, as church, as disciple. Now, because of the actions that he took were so radical, he disassociated himself with his church. Take me off prayer lists. You know, put me on the side. I'm protecting the church, even though I must act. And this is what we see. What will happen then is he will come to trial. It will last five minutes. The charges will be read. He will be found guilty. He's with a group of prisoners. One of them is an um, airman um, officer from uh, the British Air Force. He runs a service for the Sunday morning, and then when they call, come in and call his name, he knows that he's going to trial and he's going to his death immediately. And he turns to pain best, uh, this British airman, and he says, will you take Bishop Bell this greeting for me? For me. This is the end, the beginning of life. Now, as you probably saw in what was sent out, he uses a term called the world come of age. And the world come of age, this is what he saw at the time. And the roots of it are there. He had lived through the roots of it. It's going to take root and grow. Man has in our time learned to deal with himself in all questions of importance. I got the answers. It's becoming evident that um, the world can get along without God. Matter of fact, probably the only place that we have is when it's time for death and we need to make this transition. And then, you know, we might like to have the church step in at this time, but essentially give us enough time and science and we can answer it, the whole thing. And the result is God and God is, God is being pushed further and further to the side and losing more and more ground. That's a world come of age. And what we see is we run into the issue of apologetics. How do we explain? What do we do? How do we buffer? And what he's saying is we have nothing to apologize for. We need to have this personal relationship with Jesus Christ, the living Christ. We find that Christ, not just in myself and discipleship, I find that Christ in every person. And I need to see that Christ in every person so that that Christ can address me. And we cannot be ashamed to preach the gospel. Now, he had an introduction to study under Gandhi that he never got to use. So I think he would go with St. Francis on this piece, thinking back to that first sentence of the Christology lecture, where he said, 
to speak about Christ is to be silent, and to be silent about Christ is to speak. I think he would embrace St. Francis, who, who said, preach the gospel, use words when necessary. After that plot, I told you that he kind of reviewed his life, and I want to share that with you here. Okay? He knows it's over. He knows he's not getting out alive. So the day after the plot fails, he writes this reflection to his friend, Betke. I discovered later, and I am still discovering right up to this moment, that it is only by living completely in this world that one learns to have faith. One must completely abandon any attempt to make anything of oneself, whether it be a saint or a converted sinner or a churchman, a so-called priestly type, a righteous man or an unrighteous one, a sick man or a healthy one. By this worldliness, I mean living unreservedly in life's duties, problems, successes and failures, experiences and perplexities, In so doing, we throw ourselves completely into the arms of God, taking seriously not our own sufferings, but those of God in the world. Watching with Christ in Gethsemane. That, I think, is faith. That is metanoia. And that is how one becomes a man and a Christian. How can success make us arrogant? Or failure lead us astray when we share in God's sufferings through a life of this kind. You saw the term guilty martyr. Martyr is a word that means to give witness. People call him a martyr. I think, based on things that he had said, including in writing about the term, um, talk about a premonition in 1932, he wrote, we should not be surprised if the time comes for our church too when the blood of martyrs will be called for. But this blood, if we really have the faithfulness to shed it, will not be so innocent and shining as that of the first witnesses. On our blood would lie our guilt, the guilt of the useless servant. As he took faith into the what we call in German the Zitzenleben, the situation of life, as he took faith into his situation of life, because he had a unique positioning. He knew that as a person who believed in the Christian gospel of peace, that he was taking action that violated the commandments, that violated the um, Sermon on the Mount, but he was trying to do something to end suffering that could be ended as soon as possible. To, to write injustice. So I believe that he did not act in self-righteousness. He didn't say, hey, you know, situational ethic, 
These are the options. Did the best I could. I'm clean. If you really look at his works and you're reading through them, you'll find that he will say, no, I know that I was violating commandments. And I accept the responsibility and accountability before God of my actions. And I trust in God's forgiveness that I was doing this with the right will. And that's what makes him a guilty martyr and raises us above the self-righteousness that we can use by saying it was the best option. It calls us to action because it does not allow us into a pietism that we can protect ourselves and say, I'm a good person. Life in Christ requires life in the world, and that's what he's getting at. That's what makes him such a stimulating person to read. Because his theology is written as a response to the Zitzenleben of the moment he found himself in. And that allows that theology to dialogue with me. And it allows me now to dialogue with myself and with my God. And the source of that is going to be prayer, contemplation, scripture, and sacraments. And that's what Bonhoeffer did with his students. And he witnessed it after the seminary with his own life. But his Christology, his faith, was evolving to the day that he died. It was not something that began here and it was just a straight line that you could say logically went. His life paralleled the rise and fall of Nazi Germany. He fought Nazism in its ideology in the classroom, in the church, and in reality. Thank you. So um, we have about um, 15 minutes to open up for some questions and conversation with Mike. Um, just the, the only rule of the ground, ru ground rule I ask is um, don't speak until you have the microphone um, so everybody can hear. And we're also recording this for a podcast. Um, so if you say anything you don't want put up on podcast, talk to me later. We can edit it out. Don't worry. Um, all right. So uh, Dryden. Sorry to hog the microphone for the first question, but we have to leave. I was interested in your expression, uh, cheap grace. It made me think of an equivalent term, cheap courage. It seems we live in a world of self-righteousness and cheap courage. What do I mean by cheap courage? I mean anyone can stand up for their principles when they know it's quite safe to do so and there's no downside to it. We see that all around us today. The real definition of courage is the one you've just been describing when you know it's a deadly action to stand up against courage. Can anyone think of any other character who's actually done something similar? Perhaps not being put to death by Hitler, but a similar set of circumstances where courage was real and not self-righteous. I appreciate the comment, and, um, you know, I would be willing to in terms of a comment on that. I think that there are people, and this is what I like about Bonhoeffer because it goes to 
not just church official types. It goes to every disciple. And I will bet that each one of you could look in your life and see someone that you know who in a quiet way exhibited that courage. It may not have been as big as this, but I think that that's what discipleship is about and he's about in that. We each have our own Sitzenlebens. We each have our own experiences. Each one of us, in our own way, in our own here and now, do that. The gospel here in church today, um, Bonhoeffer would so agree with that double commandment of love because he specifically says the sum of all the commandments is love. And we have those people. I've read a good bit of Bonhoeffer, and I have not seen any specific references to what was going on with the Jews. If that's accurate, what do you think accounts for that? I think what accounts for it is um, Bonhoeffer was very strong on the Jewish question, and again, he's, he's responding in specific instances. So Kristallnacht, when they burned 39 and destroyed 39 of the synagogues in Germany on November 11, Bonhoeffer drove to Berlin to be with people that he knew. And he drove back to his second seminary where the students were arguing about, well, should we go, should we not go to help fight the fire because the brown shirts were stopping the fire brigade from fighting the fire. And Bonhoeffer sat down with them and said, um, a lot of things, and he took them through scripture, and one of the scriptures he took them through was, um, I think it was Psalm 74, and it said, and it said, they burn all the houses of God in the land. How long, O oh Lord, will they blaspheme? And his own brother-in-law, they smuggled he and his wife over the Swiss border before they started enforcing the Jewish things, uh, laws against them to get them out of Germany. He was very strong in that. And he also said to his seminarians, he said, if the synagogues burn today, the churches burn tomorrow. So he does address it at specific moments. And then the Abwehr, he was actively a part of what they called Operation 7. Of course, it had to be secret because you're well into the war at this time and they're smuggling over 100 Jews with false papers out of Germany on a train. So I think that he was well aware of it. He was standing up to that um, at the moment that he could, but it was not a place where he had the time to spend a lot of effort in there because of the other things drawing attention as well. Hang on a second, Larry. When I was in the seventh grade, and um, proceeding on into eighth grade, I got really interested in reading in, in the area you're talking about. And uh, William L. Shirer was a very influential voice with me. Can you comment on him? No, I, I have to beg off because I'm, I know the name, but I'm not familiar. Okay. So I, I'm sorry. Thanks, Larry. Other questions for Mike? I, I, had, I had one, if I could mm -hmm. raise it. I, I was intrigued by your description of the House of Brethren 
that he helped start. And, and the way that you described it um, brings to mind very much the concept of religious life as, as it has arisen in Christianity since really from very early times, from, from certainly uh, no later than the second century, um, as not just a movement of reform that's always present within the church, particularly during very difficult and painful times, um, which Bonhoeffer experienced, but as houses of discipline for action, mm-hmm. you know, to, to bring all the tools of the faith to bear and the repetition of prayer and study to get people ready to act faithfully, sometimes in the face of tremendously mm-hmm. adverse circumstances. Mm-hmm. Is, that a, is that an accurate reading, would you say, or would you nuance that in a way? Yeah. No, I think that's a very accurate one because he had that insight that we weren't just making ministers theologically. We had to prepare ministers who were willing to go out and had the personal strength and had the community support to witness to a gospel in a place that it was not only an issue of being accepted, it was a place where it was not welcomed and would be persecuted. And from that perspective, um, he called it the arcane discipline. Now, you have to remember that his seminarians, he was getting the seminarians theologically trained already. So he's looking at what they needed in additional pastoral theology. But he was saying that theology is only theology unless it's alive in the person, and this is how we need to do that. And he established what he called that arcane discipline. So it was going to be daily prayer together as community. It was going to be individual meditation. And one of the students talks about that difference where he said, well, you know, I tried meditation, and and I looked up all my scripture references uh, that I was going to reflect on. I did all of the exegesis for it, and I got nothing out of it. And Bonhoeffer came back and said, no, meditation is where you take the scripture passage, you sit down in quiet, and it speaks to you. So he was working at the spiritual formation that would ground them when they went out from the seminary. But he had an active community that held them in prayer they could come back to for the reunions so that they knew that this was Christ in action and that they were being supported in prayer, that they were being held by the Christian community, the church. So um, I think he recognizes uh, maybe what we could better learn in many of our seminaries today. Yeah, yeah it, it, a couple of things struck me in that. Um, the almost um, re-reforming of the church that Bonhoeffer sort of leads us into with his witness. Um, one of them is the point you just touched on, which is this, this bringing the seminary out of the academic, sort of reified academic atmosphere bringing theology out of the reified academic atmosphere and back into, into the life of the real world in a really tangible and important way. Um, but more than that, the, the other place where he, he pushes against the Reformation itself, and Dryden and I will touch on this in a couple of weeks, but he, he, he starts to push against this notion of faith 
and its sort of being inexorably intertwined with national identity. Um, nationalism, of course, nationalism in the in the 16th century was not nationalism as it was in the in the early to middle part of the 20th century. But at the same time, there's at this there's this point that Bonhoeffer seems to reach, which you highlighted and, and really struck home to me, where where the faith has to step away from this idea of national identity and national security as the be-all and end-all and step back into the realm of the whole of the human family. He's, he's very strong on that in terms of saying any ideology or person who demands limitless and unbounded allegiance cannot be embraced by the disciples. Right, and that we have a word for that, right? Idolatry, right? Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I, I'm really intrigued by the guilty martyr idea, and I think you know one of the issues that I've had in Bonhoeffer, who I haven't read a lot about, is the idea that he was part of an assassination plot. So was, can you talk a little bit more, because you did, you touched on that a little bit, that it, was it kind of like the Martin Luther saying, sin boldly? Um, I mean, how did, I, I just don't understand how he squared that. Yeah, I think what happened was he was looking at the injustice and the suffering and the killing that was going on. And what he was looking at was, he, I don't think he would say every person should go do this. I think what he's saying was even I had to stand guilty and embrace something because I was in the unique position to be part of the act, action. And that's the difficulty that we run into. Um, I th and I think that that kind of goes to the story of the sisters with um, their blowing kisses but, you know, I'm sure that there were many people in their own community, a lot of people that did not like the fact that they did what they felt needed to be done. Right. And the way they, res and the way they responded. So I think what he's, what he's saying is we need to be careful that when we act, if we are in a unique position, whatever it is, if it's joining a march, if it's in a conversation, if it's something as radical as participating in a plot against Hitler, we need to recognize the fact that I can't give myself cheap grace to cleanse what I'm doing and make me feel good about it. I need to embrace the reality of the gospel that I don't see another way and I accept the responsibility and the accountability before God of choosing to break that commandment. Now, um, a couple of the people that are that knew Bonhoeffer said that they didn't think, and John Lasserre is a real good French friend, said he didn't think that um, Bonhoeffer would have been proud of the fact that after the plot on July 20th failed, that 6,000 people were executed in retaliation. Unintended consequences. Yeah. And I think that that's what Bonhoeffer is saying, is we have to be, we have to be accountable and responsible the best way we can before, but also for the outcomes that we're seeing and unseen. And that's why, in humbleness, that's what keeps me humble as a disciple, 
I throw myself on God's mercy. I recognize my choice, and I put myself on God's mercy. I, um, something that you and I t- talked about in preparation for today's presentation um, really has stuck in my mind, too, Mike, on this point, and that is that that sense of the need to sacrifice something that was very precious to him, namely, in, in this case, his connection with the underground seminary community and the confessing church. He, he deliberately severs himself from that to the, to the point of asking them to expunge his name from roles that ostensibly uh, Nazi officials could go back and use to grab other people affiliated with him. Um, so he isolates himself um, in preparation for, for this, this sort of step at becoming the guilty martyr. Um, and he does that, um, again, not out of a place of righteousness, but out of a place of pastoral concern mm-hmm. for the safety of the people he cares about. And I think what's interesting, too, uh, is a sidebar to that one, is the fact that I'd agree with Betke on this, that... Um, just as he used the seminary to prepare his seminarians for what they were going to do, that seminary time, thinking through those lectures, delivering those lectures, what he did in the spiritual formation that he participated in, even to the point of going to students and saying, I want you to hear my confession. And the seminary, in a sense, was like a monastery. The idea being that I get grounded here for action here. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that that is you know, what, what we look at. We, so when we come to church on Sunday, we're coming to ground ourselves here for the rest of the week. Mm-hmm. Any other thoughts or questions before we wrap up today? Please uh, join me in thanking Mike Morrison again for a really amazing presentation. Thank you for the opportunity to uh, talk about somebody that I have a lot of respect for and who's influenced me. Well, thank you, Mike. This was really intriguing. Well, you know, I was laughing with a couple of people, and I said, you know, they said, what are you doing? And I said, oh, I said, it's really good because you have a Catholic going to an Episcopal church to talk about a liberal Protestant theologian. And I I think Bonhoeffer would approve. (laughs) I hope so. (laughs) 